Thank you, thank you. The cat is out of the bag. I try to keep it in the bag as much as I can. Um, you know, as you get older, birthdays just aren't what they used to be. <laughs> and so some of you today might be like, hey, Pastor Tom, do you wear glasses? Um, yeah, I always have. But when um, COVID started back in March and no one was in the room, um, it was easier for me to read my computer without my glasses on because as you age, if you've ever gotten bifocals, you understand the need. Um, and for, over the last year, I've realized the need was quickly approaching, um, but I tried to fight it because I just thought, don't want to do it. So I got used to not wearing them. And then when we started wearing masks, when we reopened, I was having trouble with the fog up. So then I'm just like, I'll just keep wearing them. So I couldn't see you at all even though you were all in the room still. And so for those of you online, I just, by faith, believe you're there. And so, but then I found that it was hard to read what was on the screen up there. And then even looking down here, I needed my bifocals. So here they are. Um, and so we're going to try it today. But if you see me, you know, moving my head in random ways, just kind of ignore it and, uh, and we'll just move on. But, you know, I'll be turning a big 45 and for some of you, you're like, wow, I can't, 45 is like so old, you can't imagine being 45. And some of you are like, dude, I wish I could be 45 again. So just depending on what side you're on, um, 45 is either really old or really young. And so depends on the day for me. <laughs> sometimes 45 is really old and sometimes 45 is really young. So thank you for uh, remembering my birthday and um, shh. So that, uh, yeah, anyway. Okay, so we're on part 25, Trust the Story. And uh, we, if you've been with us at all, you know, we've been gone, going through this series on um, what it is to trust and understand the Bible more fully. And it's not that, I, I want to be careful that we don't think that uh, any of us are saying that our understanding of the Bible has been wrong. Um, I would use the word incomplete, incomplete. Um, there are things about the scripture in our Western mindset and in our inability to study the scripture, not inability, uh, unwillingness to study the scripture that we've just missed over the years. And we're trying to bring everything into a little bit more of a context. And we actually started this back when Corona started back in March. And we actually had to wrestle with the idea of, do we continue with this series or start this series, or do we address what's happening in our world right now? Um, and I was under the thought that, you know, we're going to come out of this season, okay? And uh, who knows, maybe we didn't think it would last this long. Um, and we need to know the Word. And this series is about knowing the Word. And so we went ahead with this series and didn't, as many churches did, and not a right or wrong here, uh, many churches, <coughs> excuse me, pivoted and started to address the current crisis with some series of sermons. But we did this one, and uh, right or wrong, here we are, part 25. And uh, we've got a ways to go. I'm going to be putting together a new schedule in the week ahead because in the month of October, we're going to put a pause on this series because there's some other things we need to do in October. And then we're going to come back to it starting in November and finish it up sometime in January. But Last week was the, the book of Mark. Um, Pastor John and Heather shared with you from the book of Mark, talked a little bit about that, did a great job. Uh, if you've missed it, it's online. You can find the, 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 the MP3 version, the audio version, or the video version. And uh, this week, we're going to look at the book of Matthew in as much time as we can. The book of Matthew. And uh, coming up this, this following week, we're going to go back into the untold story. There hasn't been much reading from this over the last two weeks. You've had a lot of reading from the Bible. Um, three pages, three whole pages, pages 147 through 150. And then Acts 28, 11 to 31. 20 verses. I know. See, you're going to need to do something else because 20 verses isn't going to take you very long. Even if you read it every day. It's not going to take you very long. And so I'm going to encourage you to, if you're behind in some of the reading, read back through Matthew. I'm really going to encourage you to read the Sermon on the Mount several times, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, uh, this week, because I'm going to share some things and maybe going back over it um, might introduce you to some new thoughts that maybe you didn't have before. But this series has really been about a phrase that I've used over and over again, becoming people of the text, 
Becoming people who are more than just casual readers of the Bible. People who study the Bible. People who understand that there are things hidden in the Bible, not just necessarily prophetic things. Okay, when we say that there are things hidden in the Scripture, some of us think, oh, Jesus hid things in the future in the Scripture. And that's true. But there are references to the Old Testament that if you are not someone who memorizes and understands the Old Testament, you are going to miss them. And Matthew, when he wrote to the Jews, refers a lot back to the Old Testament scriptures. And Luke, when he wrote to a Gentile audience, if he refers back to something that he's not sure his Gentile audience is going to pick up on, he actually explains it. Matthew never does. And so the scripture itself tells us, as believers, we should read it. We should read the Bible. Okay? Most of us agree with that. It also tells us we should memorize it. Not just when we're children. Okay? Most of us did that when we were in Sunday school class or when we were in junior Bible quiz or teen Bible quiz. But how many of you, don't raise your hand, actually purposely memorize the Scripture on a regular basis now? And yet the Scripture commands us to memorize it, to hide it in our hearts. And, well, maybe that's just one of those if-you-want-to Scriptures. I don't think it is. I think we need to memorize it. What if there comes a day when they take this away? How much are we going to remember? Interesting to think on. Maybe that's why we were told to memorize it. Um, in fact, the early church didn't have this. They had this. It was memorized. It tells us to meditate on it. Like throughout the day, meditate on the scripture. Meditate on, bring back up. It literally is like a cow chewing the cud. Bring back up. Huh? It's a great and chew on it some more type of thing. But it also tells us to study the word. Study it. And some of us, back in the 80s, we started doing these spiritual gift assessments. I don't know if you remember that time where it was like, well, my gift is this. And so, and, and so we started to exempt ourselves. And I'm not against spiritual gift assessments. I think you should serve in your sweet spot. I think we're all gifted in different ways. But that doesn't exempt us from doing something outside of our gifting. And sometimes we use our, our spiritual giftings as an excuse not to do something. Well, I just, I'm not good with kids, so I would never do that. Well, what if the Holy Spirit came alongside and said, do it? He did to me once because I used to say, I'm not really good with kids. And then we needed a rainbow teacher, and I'm like, well, I'm not really good with kids, so I'll pray one in. And the Holy Spirit said, do it. So I did. And I did okay. I mean, you'll have to ask Marla. She was down there with me in the room most of the time if I did okay. But I, I did what I could, and I grew in it. And it's still not my gifting, but I found I could do it. And some of us, because we're not, well, I, I mean, when I get super excited about some of these things that I'm teaching, and you're like, why is he getting so excited? That shows, you know, you're not like a teacher type of gifting and you're not like these things don't excite you. But that doesn't exempt us from the study of the scripture. All of us need to be students of the word, whether it resonates with us or not, because that's what the Bible teaches us. And so there are rabbinic teaching methods that Jesus uses that sometimes you and I miss. So when Paul comes and says, hey, study the scripture. Does he mean study it like, you know, we study things in our Western world? Sure, that could work. Or does he mean study it the way he would have studied it under his rabbi, Gamaliel? Because if you, if you understand the way that Paul studied the scripture, he memorized the entire Old Testament. And then when he comes to us in Romans chapter 3, if you remember when we studied the book of Romans, I talked about stringing pearls. Stringing pearls is a rabbi type of teaching where you take like several Old Testament scriptures and you string them together. Boom, 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 boom. Paul does that in Romans chapter three. He strings together Old Testament passage after passage after passage after passage. And we maybe if we have the footnotes in our Bible realize, oh, look, he's quoting Old Testament verses. But what we maybe don't understand is the Jew who has memorized the Old Testament not only knows the verse he's quoting, but the entire context he's quoting, and then it makes it more complete. So it's not that when we read Romans 3, 
we don't understand anything. It's just we don't get the full context when we don't study the Scripture. So that's what this series has all been about. And I know it, sometimes it seems like it's super overwhelming. Pastor Tommy, you're just like crazy. Um, it's taken me more than seven years to get to the place where I am. And some of the things I'm sharing with you now, the first time I heard them, I promise you, I was like, huh? Um, and I didn't understand it whatsoever. In fact, we're going to look at one of those passages today. And so if you've got your Bible, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to talk about building on the rock. Matthew chapter 16, building on the rock. And so you've got to keep in mind um, that this series is like a snapshot. There's no way for me to tell you all that's contained in the book of Matthew in the next 30 minutes. It's just not going to happen. So I'm going to do what I can to kind of give us an overview of some of Matthew. But we're actually going to come back to Matthew in 2021 because Matthew contains the Sermon on the Mount. And to me, the Sermon on the Mount is way more significant than, than I think we understand. So we're going to come back to that. But the Gospels is what we're we're looking at. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are what we call the Gospels. And if you remember from some earlier teachings, that word gospel is not a Christian word, okay? It's a cultural word. It's a Greek word. It's a Roman word. And they had gospels, good news of the Roman Empire, good news of the Greek Empire, good news. And so when Jesus comes preaching the gospel of the kingdom, he's preaching the good news of the kingdom. It's a very cultural term. Christians, which there weren't any when Jesus was teaching, but Jews and Gentiles would both understand what gospel of the kingdom meant. In our world today, gospel has become a Christian term. It's not really a term that the culture understands. We've actually changed the word gospel to just mean Jesus died on a cross for our sins. Well, that is true, and that is contained in the gospel, but that is not the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is bigger than just Jesus died for our sins, but that is a big part of the gospel. And that's something that we've talked about as we've gone through this too. So last week, again, Pastor John and Heather took us through Mark and again talked to us about uh, the mark being written to the Romans, so those with Western mindset. We used to think, when people first became Christians, we were like, hey, read the Gospel of John. But then we realized that actually it was better for them to read the Gospel of Mark because Mark is actually written, written to a Western mindset. And it, it's, it's like action-packed, okay? Mark is like, let's keep moving. They talked about how many times Mark says, immediately, 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 immediately. Now, I don't know how you're going to take this, but just because Mark wrote immediately doesn't mean it happened immediately. Don't shoot me. It doesn't mean that Mark's gospel is not inspired. But you've got to understand that these, these writers of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are not writing an autobiographical or biographical journal detailed entry of every single thing that happened. For 30 to 40 years... The disciples have been teaching the teachings of Jesus orally. Now we've come to the part in our story where they're starting to write them down. But they're not writing them down like, here's what happened on day one. Here's what happened on day two. Here's what happened on day three. They're taking all of the teachings of Jesus over three years, 365 days, 24-7, spent with Jesus on the planet. They're taking all of that. Plus, what they now know is the post-resurrection of Jesus, and they are putting all of that in a way that they can present it to an audience, and the audience understands who Jesus is and what he's done. Mark, writing to a Roman audience, knows he's got to keep things moving. Sort of like me today, i got to keep things moving, or some of you are going to fall asleep on me. So i got to keep things moving because we're a Western audience. But Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience, so Matthew's going to do things a little bit different. Matthew's going to present Jesus as the Messiah, the fulfillment of the story. In fact, if you go to Slack this last week, I put a ton of resources on Slack for you this week. There's a short video by the Bible Project that takes the book of Matthew, and it actually shows you how Matthew presents Jesus as the continuation of the story God has been telling all along. He is the king from the line of David. He is the new Moses that has come. He, it, he just continues this linear presentation of who he is. And so Matthew, when he comes to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 
Jesus sits down on a mountain and gives a teaching to the people. You have to understand that the Jews are going to instantly say, that's Moses bringing the Torah to the people on the mountain. It doesn't mean that Jesus ever at one time sat down and did Matthew 5, 6, and 7. He could have, but that could just be Matthew's collection of Jesus' teaching presented in a way to show that Jesus is Moses that has come to teach this. And some of you might think that that's important. Some of you might think that that's no big deal. But we're going to come back to, again, the Sermon on the Mount in the, the future because there's so much good stuff in there. But I promised Matthew 16 first, so let's go there. Matthew chapter 16, when I first went to Israel, we went to Caesarea Philippi, which when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and I did not understand what was happening with Caesarea Philippi. In fact, let me tell you, we were there, and uh, I was raised in church, okay? So I had been in church at that point 37 years. I had gone to Bible school for five years. I had been in ministry for 14 years, and yet at Caesarea Philippi, everything kind of just went over my head. I mean, I took great notes and I wrote stuff down, but I promise you dots were not being connected that really have not been fully connected until this year. And so seven years later, there's hope for maybe some of you will get it faster than me, but I put a Bema episode on Slack about Caesarea Philippi warning. It contains some graphic information about the idolatry that's taking place at Caesarea Philippi that I'm not going to share today in the sermon because I want to keep this rated G. But I promise you that it was a lot like Jesus taking his disciples to the Las Vegas Strip uh, on a Friday night at prime time and more. Okay, there is a lot happening at Caesarea Philippi. There is a large, and it would have been great for me to put a picture up, but I don't have one. Uh, There's a large rock mountain there, okay? And carved into the side of it are all of these temples, these pagan idols at Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is a rabbi. They wouldn't go there as a Jew. This would be a totally unclean place, and I'm guessing that none of the disciples have ever been here before. You just don't go here because this is a very demonic, oppressive, all kinds of idolatry taking place. But Jesus takes them there because like a good rabbi, he wants to teach them something. And in order to teach them something, he wants to use an illustration. And that's how rabbis taught. When Jesus cursed the fig tree, okay, you remember Jesus cursed the fig tree and it withered and died. And we're all like, that's weird. Okay. If you keep reading like a Jew, you realize Jesus goes into the temple and cleanses the temple. And then later on, they talk about the tree again. The cursing of the fig tree is really all about what's happening in the temple, not really just about the tree. And Jesus is illustrating to his disciples that he's expecting a certain fruit in the temple that he's not finding. So he curses what's happening in the temple. And then he begins to tell them that not one stone is going to be left on another. It's all going to be taken down. So there's a lot happening in the scripture that sometimes we miss and we just think, hey, I can curse a tree. That, so that apple tree in my yard, I'm sick of picking up apples. I'm just going to curse it. Eh, that could or could not work, but you got to understand what Jesus was doing. So Matthew 16, here we are. Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asks his disciples, who do people say the son of man is? Not because he's looking for information. He's teaching. Okay. He knows who people say he is. He can hear um, Yeah, even without social media, he knows. So, some say that he's John the Baptist, some say that he's Elijah, still others, Jeremiah. And it's interesting to me that of all the prophets, they mention Jeremiah. If you know anything about Jeremiah, Jeremiah was prophesying about something when all the other prophets were prophesying other things. Okay, so Jeremiah was saying, hey, Babylon's going to come, surrender to Babylon. This is the way of the Lord. And all the other prophets were saying, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't surrender to Babylon. Fight against Babylon. Interesting that the message of Jesus being compared to Jeremiah. There's a whole lot there, but I don't have time. So what about you, he says? Who do you say I am? And Simon Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ. That's what Messiah means, the Christ, the anointed one. The son of the living God. 
Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or the gates of hell, will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. So Peter jumps in, you're the Christ, you're the Messiah. That's not the best part. He says you're the son of the living God. That's a reference to some Old Testament passages. And Peter, as a student of Jesus, who is his rabbi, Jesus is like, yes, you nailed it. Great job. And that was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. You caught that from my father. And then he does this play on words. Okay, Simon's name is Simon, and Simon means hearer. That's his name, to hear. But Jesus says, no, we're going to call you Peter. Peter is his, now his nickname. That means rocky or stony. It means small rock. And on this Petra, not the same word, okay, Petros is Peter. Petra is a big rock. And on this big rock, bedrock, I will build my church. Now, what's the rock that he's going to build his church on? We've debated this for years. Some, especially the Catholic Church, say Peter's the rock, okay? And guess what? Peter probably kind of is a little bit of the rock because he was the leader of the early church. We see it in the book of Acts. So sure, I, I would say that. I mean, I don't think he's like God-like status, but I can see that he would be the beginning of the church. Great. Um, some of us believe that it's the revelation, that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And I would say yes and amen. That is absolutely true. He's building his church on that. But it is not by accident that they are at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi contains the gates of hell. On this wall, with all of these false gods, there is a spring that flows out, and Baal is worshipped there because Baal is providing that water from underground, and the well is so deep that it goes into the dark abyss, and they have called it the gates of hell. Ironic that Jesus brings his disciples to Caesarea Philippi, has this, and says, right here on this rock, I will build my church. Not off in some corner of the world, hidden somewhere, but right here at the gates of hell, the place that most of my disciples will avoid, I will build my church. We don't have to run and hide from the chaos of our world. We go right into the gates of hell and we build his church. Church, the church is supposed to be on the offensive. That doesn't mean be offensive, but be on the offensive, storming the gates of hell, setting captives free, releasing them. But most of us are worried about just staying in our private little sectors and keeping what we have, keeping what, what, what we want to be safe. And he's like, no, my kingdom is all about going and retrieving and building. And Jesus never had to get worried or anxious or upset about it. Part of our problem also is we don't understand this word church. Again, the word church that Jesus uses here is a Greek word called ekklesia. Ekklesia is not a Christian word. It's a culture word. It's a Greek word, a Roman word. An ekklesia is literally the citizens gathering. And when the citizens gather together, they speak their minds, they exercise the right to vote, and the, the government of their city is set at the ecclesia. Okay? Jesus uses that term. And if you remember from Acts chapter 15, I know I'm going to get really teachy for a moment, and if you haven't listened to much, you might have to go back. In Acts chapter 15, remember we talked about the Jerusalem council when they were speaking their mind and then they voted, and it seemed good to us in the Holy Spirit to do this, and they were binding and loosing. 
And Jesus says, I will build my church. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. You're going to bind. You're going to loose. He is referring to a cultural thing that happens. And in the American church, the Western church, we want to just get in our little corner, study the Bible all by ourselves, me and Jesus in my personal relationship, and just bind and loose whatever I want to bind and loose and make it mean whatever we want it to mean. And Jesus is saying, no, I'm putting together a group of believers. And those group of people that put faith in me are going to come together. I'm going to give them the authority of the kingdom. They're going to take what I do. They're going to exercise it. They're going to hash it out together. They're going to know what to bind and loose, and they're going to know that I'm the conquering king, and then they're going to build my church, even on the gates of hell. Wow, that's more exciting to me than it seemed like in the room. So, um, but we, we have this misunderstanding about this is not just a spiritual prayer time thing. I'm not saying we should not bind and loose in prayer. But to say, to not understand what Jesus is saying to do, the body of Christ is never meant to be just you and Jesus. It's meant to be a body of believers walking together with the keys of the kingdom, exercising the authority of Christ who has been made king. Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus has been made king. Now, the problem is, our idea of king culturally and the kingdom idea of king are not the same. The book of Colossians, Paul says that Jesus triumphed over his enemies by the cross. Okay, so here's, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to every nation on the planet today, and I want you to go to the head of that nation, and I want you to say to them, hey, the way you need to conquer and the way you need to set up your kingdom is to die for your people. And see how many of them take you up on that. See, the kingdoms of the world, all of them, do not operate the way the kingdom of God operates. They cannot but as citizens of the kingdom that live in kingdoms of the world, we need to make sure we operate under kingdom of God, not just kingdom of the world. And sometimes we have a hard time making that connection. And Jesus' disciples have a hard time making that connection because Jesus has to then go on and explain that he has to go to Jerusalem. And look, who he's going to suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Pastor John and Heather did a great job of explaining all of that to us last week and what that meant, but Peter doesn't like it. And they even reminded us that Good old Peter, who was just praised for what he did, puts his foot in his mouth and takes Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, this is not going to happen. But Jesus is like, it has to happen because this is how kingdom of God operates. But Peter's thinking kingdom of world. The Messiah is going to conquer Rome. The Messiah is going to storm the gates of hell with a sword. <laughs> Jesus is like, no, that is not how my kingdom operates. But we in the American church do not like this message. Because we don't want to lay our lives down at the gates of hell. We want to cling. We want to store up treasure here. Not where we're called to store it up. And this is not a popular message, but this is the message that Jesus taught. That's why I think the Sermon on the Mount is so crucial to us. The Sermon on the Mount lifestyle that Jesus teaches us is so countercultural that most people that Jesus taught it to didn't understand it. Even until after his resurrection, his disciples didn't fully understand it. But after his resurrection, he opened their minds to the scripture and they began to understand it. It seems ludicrous to us. And so what we do is we take the Sermon on the Mount and we find things and we're like, well, that must just be hyperbole. We don't really study. We don't really dig in to make sure it's hyperbole. We're just sure it's hyperbole because it doesn't make sense. We need to be careful that we know what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount because some of us are building our lives on something 
that I think might crash at some point in the future. And we want to make sure that we do what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount and build our lives on the rock. So turn over to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to look at one part of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 7 about building on the rock. And this is, again, the story that Jesus has been telling from beginning to end. Um, I don't know a lot about construction, but from what I do know, that you measure twice and cut once. All right? Is that a good rule of thumb? Measure twice, cut once. Because once you cut, you can't uncut. So measure twice, cut once. And sometimes if you're going to cut something really big or you want like a line to be drawn and you want it to be really straight, and maybe it's not even just in construction, you don't just do two endpoints as measurement. You actually find points in the middle also so that when you line it up, you get a straighter line. In fact, the more middle points you have, the straighter your line will be. So when we have Genesis and Revelation and we try to draw a line between them, our line isn't necessarily straight. And some of us in our understanding of Scripture don't have a good understanding of the Old Testament, but we've got a little bit of an understanding of Jesus or some of the letters of the New Testament, but our line isn't fully straight until we get all of them connected. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with Trust the Story. And we've got to make sure that what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount is one of those anchor points. Because it's very, very important. Um, I also put um, a podcast link to someone brand new. Someone brand new. Um, that taught on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, he taught, teaches on the Beatitudes where Jesus is actually stringing pearls again. And so if, it's on Slack. If you want to do some extra credit work, it's there. But Matthew chapter 7, Jesus does this teaching and he comes to the end. And he says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash." A lot of us will look at this verse and we think the storm refers to the end of time. It does not. Okay, there in, in the Judean wilderness, there are these valleys, okay? And so when there's a flash flood, because when it rains in the wilderness, the ground is so hard that it just runs off. So if you ever go to Israel and you're going through the wilderness, make sure your guide knows where he's going because you could get lost, number one. And number two, if you are in one of those valleys when there is a flash flood, you're done. Okay, it will just sweep you away. There's just, deaths happen often because people get swept away, because they get lost, they get turned around, and uh, they get swept away by the water. So, if you build down there on the sand, sure enough, a storm is coming. I mean, not the storm, but a storm, it's coming. And so it's better to build your house up on the rock, because when the storm comes, the water's down below and your house will not. Even though it rains and all this happens and the waters rise, the waters can never rise enough to get to you because you're built on the rock. And that's what Jesus is referring to. And he tells us, how do we know whether we're building our lives on that sand or on the rock? Well, it's how consistently you and I are putting his words into practice. So it would be good for us to read Matthew 5, 6, and 7 and say, how well am I putting his words into practice? Because guess what? Storms are coming. And storms reveal how well we've been doing our homework, putting his words into practice. Okay, some people like, are like, well, it reveals whether I'm saved or not. No, it reveals on how well you're putting his words into practice. Whether you're saved or not is whether you put confidence in what Christ did for you. Your righteousness is not based on anything but what he did. And now that you've come into the kingdom because of what he did, you've made him king. And the king doesn't come to you and say, hey, here's my words. And you say, eh, I don't really want that one. I know it's hard for us to understand kingdoms in our dem democracy here, our democratic republic, but if the king says, Christina, here's an order, and Christina's like, eh, what happens in a kingdom? <laughs> yeah, you're done. 
So we have voluntarily come into a kingdom, but we have preached a gospel that's just, you know, just ask Jesus to forgive your sins. But the gospel of the kingdom, yeah, there's forgiveness of sins, but he's king. And here's his kingdom. Love your enemies. Let your yes be yes. Don't just not murder, but don't hate. Don't, don't not commit adultery. Don't lust in your heart. Jesus isn't saying that if you do these things that you're, you're not saved. No, he's saying you've come into my kingdom, but now here's what you need to do to reveal me to others, to live out my kingdom on the earth. And some of it goes against our natural mindset, and we're like, I don't want to do that. It doesn't. And here's the thing. This is a quote by Frank Viola. God is always at work in any crisis, whether personal or global, and he is always after the transformation of his people into the image of Christ and seeking to awaken a kingdom consciousness in them. And then he goes on to say, are we asking God to get us out of this moment, whatever this moment is for you, whether it's a personal crisis or a global crisis, and get us back to normal, or are we asking, Lord, bring me through this transformationally? Because what happens is when we... When we go through a storm and we overreact or we get angry or we fly off the handle, most of us don't like to humble ourselves and say, you know what, the reason that happened, my house crashed. And so I was, I was not putting the words of Jesus into practice regularly enough so that when the storm came, my house didn't crash. We like to blame our spouse or our kids or our dog or the president or this person, or that person. And the bottom line is, no matter what the storm is, how I react or respond in the storm shows whether or not I've been putting into practice the words that Jesus taught, what I've been building my life on. Because guess what? No power of hell, no scheme of man will ever pluck me from his hand. Right out of Romans chapter 8, it's in Christ alone I put my trust. Jesus ends this teaching, or at least Matthew ends this teaching, saying the crowds were amazed because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Because Jesus has gone through the Sermon on the Mount over and over, and he said, you've heard it said this, but I say this. You've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say, if you hate someone, you murdered them in your heart. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say, if you lust after someone in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So what is Jesus doing? He's, he is using a, a type of authority that rabbis didn't have unless that authority was conferred upon them by someone else who had authority. So you can't, as a Jewish rabbi, decide what you're going to teach. The community decided what you were going to teach. And if you started teaching something that was different than what the community had bind and loosed and agreed upon, you better have authority to do it. So Jesus, you know, strolls into Jerusalem. And uh, remember, he's there to confront the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and be executed. But he's going to confront them. And when he does, they come to him and they're like, what authority, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? That's what they want to know. Where'd you get this from? You are crossing lines. You're not allowed to do this. Who gave you this authority? So Jesus, in great Jesus fashion, says, okay, I will ask you one question, and if you answer me, I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Now, do you ever wonder why they just went along with that? Well, because it's rabbinic. If you come to me with a question and I give you a question and you can't answer my question, I'm not obligated to answer your question. And that's an agreed upon system. So much so that when Jesus stumps them, they walk away because they're like, rrr, rrr. but they say John's baptism, where did it come from? From heaven or human origin? So they discuss it. If we say from heaven, he'll say, why didn't you believe him? But if they say human origin, they're afraid of the people, which is also why they went to Jesus at night because they were afraid of the people. For they hold that John was a prophet. So Jesus said, they said to Jesus, we don't know. And he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus never had to like freak out, overreact. He always had words. He always had wisdom. 
from the Spirit. Why? Because he faithfully put into practice his own words. Now, I don't want you to leave today feeling guilty if your house is crashing. I want you to leave today saying, God, I need to to start being more diligent to put your words into practice so that when the storms come, even the little storms of my boss asking me to do something that wasn't scheduled, that little storm doesn't cause nuclear reaction. I can handle it because I've been built. He doesn't have the right to ask me that. Well, but I've already laid down my life, so even though he doesn't have the right to ask me that, I'm going to be able to do that. And God's going to give me the grace to do that. Wow. That might even stand out like stars, which is what Jesus told us to do. And I'm running way out of time, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount uses a phrase where he came to fulfill the law and not abolish it, remember? That word fulfill literally doesn't just mean to to do it all, it means to properly explain it. So what Jesus has come to do is to properly explain what the law, the Torah, was always meant to do. So the Sermon on the Mount, when it says it wasn't just about murder, it was actually showing you not to hate. It wasn't just about adultery, it was actually showing you not to lust. It wasn't just about not, not hating your enemy, it was actually about learning to love your enemy and act towards them in certain ways. So Jesus comes to fulfill what the law was supposed to be teaching them all along. And it's counter-cultural. Now again, I, I want to I explain this so clearly, and then I'm gonna, we're going to be done. Salvation for us is by putting faith in Christ alone. My performance in putting the words of Jesus into practice after committing my life to him is not my salvation. Let me show it to you. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, so let's lay aside every weight, the sin which so easily clings to us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder of, and the perfecter of our faith. Founder and perfecter. Okay? He did it. And the reason that this is important for us is because sometimes after we start serving Jesus a long time, we start thinking that we are righteous because we're following the commands of Jesus and people over here are unrighteous because they're not. But the reason I'm righteous is because of what Christ did for me. And the reason I follow the commands of Jesus is because I've made him king. And he's given me the grace to follow him. So we can look at someone in in our society today that's a very good moral person. And they keep the Ten Commandments and they follow all of the laws of God. And you look at them and you're like, man, they're a great person. And they even say this, yeah, I pray to God every day. And guess what? They're not saved because morality doesn't save you. Keeping the Ten Commandments doesn't save you. Keeping the Sermon on the Mount doesn't save you. Praying to God does not save you. Putting faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross saves you. Period. And that's the only thing that saves us. And that's the only thing that keeps us. And we sometimes get that, and then we get angry at people that are living in unrighteousness, which is what the Pharisees did. Jesus condemned the Pharisees not because they were passionate to keep the law, but because they lacked mercy on those that weren't keeping the law. Because keeping the law doesn't save anyone. Don't believe me? Paul said it in Galatians. We ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, but because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Well, Pastor Tom, if I put faith in Christ, it doesn't matter how I live. Au contraire. Because to come into the gospel of the kingdom means you've given allegiance to the king. Allegiance above everything. He gets my allegiance more than my wife gets my allegiance. He gets my allegiance more than my children get my allegiance. He gets my allegiance more than America gets my allegiance. He gets total allegiance. 
And if anything makes me give him less allegiance, it's wrong. Total allegiance. And he has called me as a citizen of the kingdom to live like a citizen of the kingdom, which is countercultural to everything in this world. And in Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. People do not light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus calls us to live in this kingdom culture lifestyle so that the world sees us and sees what the Father is like. So here's the challenge for this week. Here's what, here's what we can do. Read Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and then say, Holy Spirit, how's my light shining? When people look at me, do they see Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, or do they see something else? Because I would rather us, <laughs> I would rather us get with the Holy Spirit, and here's, here's even, if you want double extra credit, Call a believer, okay? Not your, not your believer friend that is not going to challenge you, but a believer that's not afraid to tell you the truth. And ask them, hey, how do you think I'm doing living out the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle? And before you answer, scroll through my Facebook page and check it out and, uh, over the last week, and then let me know. That's Sermon on the Mount lifestyle, friends. And I would rather us be in community and have those conversations with each other and say, hey, how, how am I doing? Because guess what? Everyone in this room, you have blind spots. Me too. And if we don't have people speaking into our lives, pointing things out, remember Jesus said, I discipline everyone I love. So if we're not being disciplined, we're in trouble. And we're probably building on a sand. And I would rather us figure this out before a storm came and made us, you know, look foolish. Which is what Jesus said. We'd be foolish. And because it doesn't mean we just look foolish. We make him look foolish. And the church too often makes him look foolish. Because storms come. And our houses crash. And we don't repent. We don't humbly get up and say, oh, man, I was wrong. I made this mistake. We blame. We, we, you know, shield. You know, don't judge. Well, we were supposed to be dealing with the log in our eye all along so that we would be able to handle the situations of others. See, all of this is in, on, in the Sermon on the Mount. So that's our homework assignment. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Find another believer. Ask them, hey, how am I building? Ask the Holy Spirit. How am I building? Am I ready? Because let me tell you something. We're, culturally, we're in a storm. Globally, we're in a storm. And I don't care what you think the storm is or isn't. We're in a storm. Most of everyone agrees there's a storm happening. And it's not the biggest storm that's coming. It's not. And some of you are in individual storms in your lives, and they're big ones. Some of you are facing major things right now. But they're not the biggest things that are coming. And Jesus all along has been trying to prepare us and get us ready for his coming. And some of us are fighting against the very thing he wants to do in our lives. And we need to be sure that we're saying, God, bring me through this transformationally, not just, oh, get me out of here. Get me back to where I can, you know, have a good time again. Watch a little football and just, you know, relax. I don't know. I think sports needed to come down a notch in our world. Praise God. Make sense? All right. I know that's a weird way to end. But what I'm going to do is I'm just going to pray. And I'm going to pray a blessing over us because we're going to need it as we do that homework assignment. You still need to read Acts 28, 20 verses, a couple pages in there. But I really want us to dig into the Sermon on the Mount and call each other on the phone. Have coffee. Say, hey. How am I doing in this? And if you're really brave, find a believer that doesn't 
see eye to eye with you. You know, that doesn't like necessarily agree doctrinally on everything. Ask them. Some of you didn't seem like you wanted that one, but anyway. (laughs) And so, oh, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for coming to us when we could not come to you. Thank you for giving your life as a ransom for us, for modeling this kingdom lifestyle. God, you have not called us to do anything that you have not modeled yourself. And the reason you modeled it is because it's who you are. It's your nature. God, you are love. You are humility. You are peace. You are mercy. God, these are who you are. And we want them to be a part of who we are. So, Father, I pray for every person in this room, every person watching online. God, if there are any that have never made that commitment to come to you, to turn from their life, their lifestyle of sin, their life of calling their own shots, and have never put faith in what Christ did on the cross for them. Holy Spirit, I pray bring them to that place of decision even right now. God, for those of us that have come into the kingdom, who have given our allegiance to you, Holy Spirit, we ask for grace this week. As we read through the Sermon on the Mount, as we read the teachings of Jesus, as we interact with one another, as we look to you, Holy Spirit, I pray, give us wisdom and insight to show us where we're building our lives. Are we building on rock? Are we building on sand? Are we diligently putting into practice the words that you've given us, letting our light shine? As Paul said, shining like stars and doing everything without grumbling and complaining? Or God, are we allowing ourselves to be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin and selfishness and pride? So Holy Spirit, expose everything in our our hearts, our lives that needs to be cast aside, everything that's slowing us down in this race that we're called to run. Give us grace to do it this week, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, as we look at Romans, um, not Romans, Acts chapter 28, we're going to talk about that race. And so we're going to talk about throwing those, some, those things off. But I encourage you, get into the Sermon on the Mount. Get with a friend. Spend some time in prayer through it. And uh, kind of prepare our hearts for next week and what the Holy Spirit wants to say. So thanks for being with us today. Um, we're going to dismiss in the room.